As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. This is Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. So turn up your Walkman, loosen that scrunchie, and get ready to talk 80s with your host, Lindsay Parker. Hi, I'm Lindsay Parker from Yahoo Entertainment and Sirius XM Volume, and this is another episode of Totally 80s. Since we're all at home, obviously, why not take a second to follow us at Totally 80s on Facebook and Instagram, and email us your comments and show ideas to podcast at totally80s.com. You can also check us out on video as well on our Totally 80s YouTube channel, so check that out if you're so inclined. And joining me today, as always, is my partner in all things 80s, the other John Hughes. Hello. Lindsay, what's going on? I am ready to eat it. I'm going to dare to be stupid. I'm ready for today. I'll take that day. I always I always do that. I can't wait one more minute. Ah, no, deep cut. I like it. It's my favorite word, Al song. Spoiler alert. That, that will give our listeners a, a slight idea of what we're about to talk about. I can't think of a better guest that we could have for what we're about to talk about. So someone who's been on Totally Idiots before, and we're happy to have him back. Our special guest today is a comedian producer, radio personality, and writer for television shows like Billy on the Street, Girl Boss, Wet Hot American Summer, First Day of Camp, and a personal favorite of ours here, Difficult People. He's also an experienced podcaster, so he's going to put us through our paces. You may know him from his excellent podcast, The Fogelness Files, and there he is. If you haven't gone back and checked that out, you really should. And a lot of people who listen to this podcast will probably remember this guy, Best as the creator and host of Squirt TV on MTV, a show he started in his bedroom when he was 14 years old. And now we're all back in our bedrooms again, still <laughs> yeah. on camera. It's a full circle <laughs> moment here. Welcome to Totally 80s. Welcome back. Jake Vogelness. Thank, thank you so much, you guys, for having me back. I, I uh, had so much fun on this show. And um, yeah, uh, it, it back doing shows out of uh, our houses, I've actually, I, I, I've made the Squirt TV stuff available to people uh, again. Um, and I just said, oh, I'll start one of those Patreon things. So that's up now. <laughs> and you can awesome. see the old Squirt TV stuff and some new stuff that I'm recording out of my house, because why not? Why not? Well, you were definitely ahead of the curve at age 14 and, you know, bringing the comedy then. We're obviously all big comedy fans here. So we thought it was only natural to bring you on to talk about something still happening today with acts like the old Lonely Island and such novelty songs of the 80s. We're going to cover them all. Obviously, we've already mentioned that we're going to talk about Weird Al, the goat, the greatest of all time. We're going to hit them all. But it's interesting because I think, obviously, the 70s set the stage for novelty songs with, you know, Fish Heads, Dr. Demento. But I feel like the floodgates opened in the 80s. Honestly, when I was doing research for this podcast, like some of the songs that were legit hits kind of like 
almost crossed the line into novelty songs. Like she blinded me with science, rock lobster, and like a ton of stuff, the B-52s, to be honest. A ton of stuff that Sparks did on the Angst in My Pants, pants record, uh, Oingo Boingo stuff, like stuff like Punk Rock Girl by Dead Milkman, Da 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 by Trio, Ghostbusters, Belly of the Whale, Safety Dance, all of these sort of almost skirted the line. It was just a funny decade. People had good sense of humor in the 80s. But we're going to take a dive into things that were like really like, on, you know, there's no doubt about it. They're on definitely on the side of novelty on that line. So yeah, we should define our term here. I think novelty records in this case means things that were intentionally parody, satire, meant to be humorous. I nothing drives me nuts more than when people call Devo a novelty band. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, I totally, I totally agree because uh, you know d d I'm one of the biggest uh, Devo fans ever, and uh, there's so there's such a rich history. But I will agree with Lindsay. There is something inherently funny about just the the new wave, like yeah. new wave genre. But what we're talking about today are your hard comedy. Uh, yeah. yeah, parody songs. <laughs> right. But I do think that phenomenon of the skirting the line probably has to do with we associate a lot of the songs I just mentioned with their videos that were really funny. Yes. But as I said, this, you know, like the video for She Blind Me with Science is, is very camp. But when we get into real novelty songs, I would I would argue that the 80s was the golden age of novelty songs because of MTV. They would play anything and you could, you know, they made Weird Al a star. They would play Taco putting on the Ritz. We'll get into that in a minute. But let's talk about Weird Al because I'm going to, I don't know if there's a popular opinion or an unpopular opinion. Obviously he is famous and very deservedly Grammy winning multiple times over for his genius parodies. He parodied a lot of the songs that were on MTV, like Eat It is when you was Beat It, obviously you mentioned John. But I'm going to go out on a limb and say his best songs in my book are his original songs. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> and the, I agree. The originals, you mentioned One More Minute, which. That's, my, that's the best. That's I did the best breakup song of all time. I did an acapella rendition of that for my church youth group uh, while during a long bus ride. And I got Wait. a standing ovation on a bus. Deservedly so. What, I don't know if you know what's really, what's, uh, really funny is um, the, uh, he performed, Weird Al performed this song on some TV show. I believe it was on NBC back then. And if people this is a song where he's like i'd rather do all these horrible things than spend one more minute with you it's like a revenge you know f you song to an ex which he has told me in an interview was about a real ex she probably really <laughs> i don't know if she felt bad or if she was like wow i'm so Victoria honored jackson he did not say who it was <laughs> you can you relate to this like you know um like knowing Weird Al, getting to know Weird Al, having Weird Al in your life, could you ever have dreamed as a child that one day that Weird Al would be in your life and he would be the nicest human being? Like, I truly think that like Al Yankovic, the person, is like the nicest person in showbiz, universally True. loved. To answer your two-part question, did I ever dream that Weird Al and I would be friends? No. Did I dream that if we were, he'd be the nicest person on earth? Yes. Yeah. So, but he told me this really funny story. So when one more minute was on uh, this NBC special he did, uh, there was there's a line in the song, which is my favorite line in the song, that says, "I." It's like a parody of a doo-wop song, so it's like you know. But, you know, with all the background people going leeches and I love this song, <laughs> but there's a line in it where he says, I'd rather clean all the bathrooms in Grand Central Station with my tongue 
So, but, you know, definitely gets nails the point home about how he's very much done with the relationship. And uh, apparently the NBC censors, they thought that line was a bit, you know, uh, offensive or, you know, squirmy or cut, just gross. So they beeped it out, but they beeped out the word tongue, which makes it worse. So it's like, I'd rather clean out all the bathrooms in Grand Social Station with my beef. Yeah, makes it worse. So much worse. Or better. (laughs) <laughs> better but like people's imagination probably thought like mm-hmm, okay. I, I love that about weird out too is that weird out like makes a conscious effort to be clean like you know um and and i wish more people would do that like i would rather have one well-placed piece of profanity i think it's smarter than um a bunch of profane stuff and 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 i just think I had a moment. I went to see Weird Al in concert. I bought a ticket. Um, Just once? Only once? I, uh, only once. I went with a bunch of friends to the Hollywood Bowl to see was, Weird Al. I was there a couple years so, ago. Yeah, yeah, a couple years ago. So you know how Weird Al does these things where he shows uh, moments from his vast career and, um, uh, you know, little clips in between, uh, you know, him changing costumes and stuff. He does quite a production. Mm-hmm. And in, in the video package of like Weird Al's giant history of career was this Billy on the street clip. And I had written it and it, I was just like, my head exploded. Oh. Wow. And, I, and it touched my heart so much. And I wrote Al a note and I just said, I just, um, it was amazing to see that. And the show was so great. And then he wrote me back and it was just yeah. like, you know, he's, he's. And I bet you he wrote time. you back within like, a real short window of time, like 10, yeah. 15 minutes, an hour. Yeah. Very, cl- very short time and yeah. very sweet. And, but th- what he does is his style parodies and he's been doing them forever. And I, he, it was one of the later albums that he's done recently. He did a very epic Frank Zappa style parody called Genius in France, which is so yeah. fun. Just the amount of xylophone that's, that's used on it, it cracks me up. Like the style parodies, I love we're, them. We're definitely going to get to Frank Zappa later because mm-hmm. there's definitely one as someone who. Was spoiler alert raised in the valley definitely you know and and this is that's definitely one where it's like an artist that was a legitimate artist who kind of got classified as a novelty artist for one yeah. song i think we all know what we're talking about but since john you mentioned devo and you mentioned dare to be stupid this that is the pinnacle for me for weird mm-hmm. out dare to be stupid works on like nine different levels more. <laughs> it's a satire of a band that is a satire on society <laughs> Very meta. It sounds like a Devo song that you're already familiar with, but mm-hmm. it really isn't. And nope. it's amazing. The video is incredible. It's got every little uh, reference and every deep cut Devo thing you can think of visually. And uh, you, uh, it's nothing beats Dare to be Stupid for me. And I got a little quick Weird Al thing. I got to see him open for the Monkees. No! What year? That's 87, right? Or right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is like when they first reunited, like in the 80s. Oh, wow. And this is now. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's a big. He never did a monkey's parody. I feel like he could do one pretty well, but I. No, I don't think he did. He hasn't. Yeah. I wonder why. Maybe it's out of respect or, you know. Maybe. I will say that every Thanksgiving, I share the meme because it's words we could all live by. Mashed potatoes. Can be your friend. 
Exactly. It's not, it's not untrue. They can and they are. I'm, I'm a fan. I'm a I fan. also love the line. I, he just says, it's like, I can't hear you. Okay, I can hear you now. <laughs> Thank you. That's, I think, I think why he has lasted so long and, you know, quite frankly, lasted a lot longer than some, you know, career-wise than some of the artists that he has parodied um, is because of his very loving attention to detail, not just in those little references, whether it's the Frank Zappa parody or the Devo parody, but in the videos, it's just like those little tiny things that really, but since we're talking about eating, he obviously has a lot of songs about eating, you know, I mentioned the mashed potatoes, but he has actual songs about food, eat it. I love Rocky road, etc. But as much as the goat is, that is weird out. I would say, I'm going to put it right out there. The greatest novelty song of the eighties is Pac-Man fever. Speaking of eating things, Pac man <laughs> fever. I don't know if you're watching this on video, you can see a Pac-Man shrine behind me, right? Oh, okay. I'm a big, I'm a big Pac-Man and Miss Pac-Man fan. I'm a, uh, I prefer Miss Pac-Man as a so game. Do I. So do I. It's, it's the a game better layout. Yeah. It's a better. So it's really funny is on my radio show for Sirius XM, I interviewed Jerry Buckner of Buckner and Garcia. Um, sadly, Gary Garcia passed a, a while ago, but Buckner carries, you know, the torch for Pac-Man. I mean, this isn't a thing. Like, I don't think people realize, like, how big this song was. It sold 1.2 million copies. It went to number nine on the Billboard 100. Uh, it was, there's a book about it, which is also behind me on my Pac-Man shrine about Whoa. it. It's called... If you, if you need some light reading, it is light reading. Uh, it is Pac-Man Fever, the story behind the unlikely 80s hit that defined a worldwide craze. And it come, it's a Kindle book that comes with like all this like this unlock code to like hear all these like rarities and stuff. So when I interviewed Jerry Buckner, I was so excited that at one point he actually said, are you putting me on? Like he thought I was punking him because, you know, he was I was so I, I acted like I was like interviewing Paul McCartney or something. Like I was just like so stoked and I had such deep knowledge of the entire Pac-Man fever record that I'm holding here on cassette. Yeah, like I'm a huge fan of that, uh, of the Buckner and Garcia album. Cause they did all, yes, yes Pac-Man fever was the big hit. And then they if, said, let's do a full album. Yeah. So what happened was the song started off as a regional hit. Like no one wanted to put it out. They put it out themselves. It got, you know, this is what happened in the eighties when radio stations were much more regional and local it became a local hit, which eventually attracted the attention of Columbia CBS. So like they decided to sign him. If there's ever any more evidence that al that mu the music business was album driven in the early 80s and not the way it is now which is very you know single driven and song driven and track driven was that cs said okay we want a whole album from you guys so this is what jerry told me in the interview is they they were stoked him and gary because they wrote actually they came from writing commercial jingles which explains why this song works so well but they wrote other songs so they were like oh great we're gonna get to do an album but they thought like a, an album real songs so or like normal songs. <laughs> they weren't like actual like video game buffs they liked pac-man but they didn't so they you know cbs is like no we want you to do a whole album of video game songs and they were like what so they actually had to do research and like go to arcades and like talk to kids and be like you know they were already a bit older they were like in their 30s or 40s at that point they were not hanging out in arcades all the time and they had to be like what are the big games what are the hot games they did tell me they really regret that they didn't do a space invaders or um a galaga song two things on this how popular it was just to uh jump on that real quick 
someone on YouTube is getting away with posting full episodes of American Bandstand and they're not being pulled down. I don't know how they're doing this because this doing is the Lord's work. I'm sorry, doing the Lord's work. Yeah. The YouTube you. algorithm is broken, but it's not that we broken. Let's we shouldn't even mention that because yeah. what if his channel gets taken down? I know, I'm in quarantine. Yeah. I need to like look at this stuff. <laughs> so, you go on. There is an episode where Dick Clark is like, this is a big hit right now and everybody loves it. It's Pac-Man fever and they're dancing to Pac-Man fever. Everybody's into it. It's like it's a legit tune and they're doing yeah. all the and everything. And the other thing in the regional hits, we had one in Cleveland by Uncle Vic that was Space Invaders and it got picked up for national. Ooh, someone and, make that mashup right now. Someone listening. It did bubble under. It didn't. It didn't break the house. <laughs> of course, it bubbled under. Well, anyway, so CBS commissioned an entire album of like uh, eight, eight or nine songs, and they had to kind of write them real quick. I think he told me they wrote them in like a week. Wow. Some of the songs sound like they wrote them in a week, to be honest, because they had to crash. Some of them they had the music for already, you know, because they had been hoping to like do real songs, but then they had to do all these other songs. But I will say. I'm going to read the um, the real quickly the track listing on the cassette. Yes, I have the cassette of it. Uh, Froggy's Lament, Mousetrap, Do the Donkey Kong, Hyperspace. I like Hyperspace. That's kind of like an emo electro clash type song. But <laughs> Defender, Going Berserk. But I will say the secret track on this that should have been the follow-up hit is Ode to a Centipede, their power ballad. Centipede, you can't run away. But Lightning did not. Strike twice from Buckner no. I don't know if you know this. I'm wearing my eight. You might see I'm wearing an ET shirt. Do you know they tried? They told me this in the interview. Jerry did that. They tried to do a song. It actually came out about ET to capitalize on another huge trend in the eighties. A year later, it was called ET. I love you. A sentiment I can get behind. And it was all set to be promoted. Uh, apparently they even had a meeting with Spielberg's people like CBS was behind it. And then, their label mate cock blocked them because right at the same time, Michael also Jackson. on Sony. No, right? that, that too. It was Neil Diamond. Neil Diamond put on put out Turn On Your Heart Light. <laughs> and Columbia Sony got behind that instead. Understandably, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but what could have been, guys? What could have been? We don't know. You know, Pac-Man fever. I still got it. I got a pocket full of quarters. I Listen. can't head to the arcade at the moment, but I do still have a pocket full of quarters. I love Neil Diamond. We I have a lot of respect for Neil Diamond, but I think Neil Diamond didn't need to big time Buckner and Garcia on that one. He yeah, had, I still, I still he was, hold a grudge. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he didn't need an ET hit, and they needed no, it. No, they, need, they couldn't they use that. that. Yeah. They needed that follow-up hit, but the follow-up hit really should have been, e, uh, not ET, I love you, but O2 a centipede. That was the jam. So everybody, it is available to stream now. So you can, yeah, the whole album is available to stream, so go check it out. Um, but there obviously most people who uh, who did novelty songs in the 80s, even if they had a whole album, like I said, it was an album driven market, then they only had one hit. Someone who had a whole album just to support putting on the Ritz was Taco. Taco was not from Mexico. He was born in Indonesia and raised in Germany, but his name was Taco. It was the 80s. Nothing made sense. So putting on the Ritz, obviously an Ir Irving Berlin song, not a song he wrote, but how did this happen? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question, Lindsay. How did this happen? Because I just, I, like, I remember, you know, seeing the music video for this. I remember buying the album for this. This was, we, this is just something that everybody just went, yes, we okay. like it. It's, it's, it's strange. I didn't take it at the time 
as a as even a novelty song. Now oh. I can I can see yes, it's completely like maybe it wasn't a novelty song, but it was just such a the imagery of the video, the arrangement, the um, strangeness of it. For some reason, it was just one of those things where everybody in the 80s just went, yes, okay, we like this. Well, we like did. I said, MTV would play anything, and they played this a lot. But I'm curious, Jake, so you own the album After 8. I, I own have a copy of eight. Yes, okay. I have a copy of After 8, yeah. I do not own that. I do own Pac-Man Fever, but, you know, not I, After I have, 8. I have how, Pac-Man Fever, too. <laughs> how is Taco's cover of La Vie and Rose? Because that's on the record. There's, you know what? There was another. Oh, I, I wish I had it in front of me. There's another um, cover that he does on there. Rain, right? Yes. Yeah, I think he just singing in the rain. That's quite good. It's listen. It, I, it's just one of these things where there's going to be a Sunday afternoon where you're going to be in the mood to listen to After Eight. So it's good to have a copy on hand. That's how I feel. <laughs> it's good to be prepared, Jake. It's, it's just good, good to be prepared. prepared. You know. Here's the well, thing. About Putting on the Ritz, though, if you listen to it in hindsight and you listen to it now with 2020 ears, knowing what we know about music and what was going on, and everything, it's like the most accessible craftwork song you've ever mm -hmm. heard. Yeah, it's yeah, really cool. I, I'm like with Jake is like you know now it looks novelty, it's kitschy, but at the time I took it deadly seriously. I Dead like, serious, ah. yeah. No, the pr the production I think was really interesting. The style was really interesting, and you know when you're six years old or whatever, I don't, I don't remember how old I was when it came out, but yeah, I, was, I was young. I was young and I don't think I had sort of a great um, knowledge of Krautrock and its history. Uh, so it was sort of mind blowing. <laughs> now yeah. I can go, yeah, it's not exactly can, but uh, it's not oh, a, but did you know, did you know in 2010, Cleopatra Records, of course it was Cleopatra Records, who else would have done this, released a new re-recording of Put It On The Ritz with German vocals, which mm -hmm. sounds even more I want Yeah, I want that working. Weirder. Since we're on the subject, since we mentioned Krautrock, so we're sort of you know, slightly on the subject of robots. Let's yeah. stay on the robot tip. Like ro Max Headroom had a song in the eighties with the art of noise. So there was some credibility to this one. <laughs> so it was called Paranormia. It was a, basically a monologue about this robot. I didn't know robots needed sleep, but it was a song about kind of like having insomnia, being unable to sleep. But apparently there was a 12 inch version, which had Max Headroom on it, but they had like a list of all these fake people they claimed that it was Peter O'Toole on trumpet, Martina Navratilova on bass, Cher on vocals, and the Pope on drums. Uh, that's a super group. I don't think that actually happened. I think the track, the, you know, the credits might have been a joke, but you know, it was the 80s, so who knows? Who friggin' knows? This That could have happened in the 80s, but Max <laughs> Headroom was so big that he got his own song and a very credible band who did sort of, like I said, skirt that line between is this serious or not, the art and noise, were involved with it. Does anyone remember this? You remember it. Yeah, sure. they, they got really, they they had their early like credible things with close to the edit and, and you know, beatbox. And then they kind of went into this weird, okay, we're going to skirt this novelty line with paranoia and the Peter Gunn theme. It was like, and the, the yeah, with Tom Jones, let's right. forget. Yeah, I don't know if they had got like a little taste of that novelty success and they were Jones and, and you know, got to keep it up. The Art of Noise always struck me as a band that just did what it wanted. And it was so unique and so interesting and so outside the box that, like, 
like, uh, you know, a and R person or a label person would just go, yeah, sure, whatever. It seems to be working. And, and yes, the Max Headroom thing fits right in. I will say, um, I am continuously obsessed with the, uh, the Max Headroom pirating incident, just to speak to how big Max Headroom got, which was, which was, uh, you know, he had a, a, a Showtime television series, then he had a show, a, a drama series on ABC, and then he did co-commercials, and then some lunatics in Chicago broke into... Uh, a television station using pirated equipment and took over a television station in a Max Headroom mask. And you can watch it on YouTube. And it was, it became national news at the time because they took over a television station and they were wearing a Max Headroom mask and they said a bunch of nonsense. And I saw this reported on the news by Dan Rather when I was a kid and it scared the it hell out of me. Scarred me. I was around then. I mean, like as a it teenager. Guard you. It scarred me too. They interrupted Doctor Who. How dare you? Mm -hmm. uh, second of all, you had this really scary corrugated aluminum background. Yes. And the guy like, do, 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 so wait, I have a vague memory of this, but I always assumed it was like a staged, like promotional stunt. That was real. Ooh. No, it was real. And to this day, they have not caught the culprits uh, who are responsible for this. There are people who are dedicated. There's been reddits dedicated to trying to identify who did this. No one has come forward. It was a very real thing. It was, um, it, it, it was scary to me as a child because it was just like, I could be watching TV and anything could be uh it, put on and, the and control like yes it's supposed to happen what this is like it's literally you know jamming that 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 yeah. term and, and culture they, jamming yeah yeah, they, it, yeah it's re it really happened Lindsay, and and wow. it's it's on youtube and and it's on youtube with subtitles so you can try to understand what their intentions were i and, now know who chuck swirsky is i never yeah. knew <laughs> So on the similar kind of like robot, like Android, like, you know, primitive VR type character, does anyone remember, and again, this was a whole album because in the 80s, whole albums were quite easily greenlit, Will Powers. Does anyone oh, remember Will Powers? Well, yeah, you do, John, but most people, I, yeah, you're like, of course, duh. Yeah, it was Lynn Goldsmith, right? Yes, which I only recently found out. So Will Powers had uh, the song, the single, the specific single was Adventures in Success, which apparently had Sting on it. Mm -hmm. uh, but they had a whole album. It was called Dancing for Mental Health. And apparently the, the person behind it was the celebrity photographer, Lynn Goldsmith. And it was like a self-help. It was a comedy album, but it was like a parody, like self-help, like positive affirmation stuff. And it was sort of poking fun at these kind of like self-help entrepreneurs who like, you know, say you could do it, you know, almost like before Stuart Smalley or whatever, what, you know, was that. And um, apparently there were a lot of big people. I mentioned Sting, but the album had like Steve Winwood and Nile Rogers and Tom Bailey from the Thompson Twins and Carly Simon. And I guess this one doesn't surprise me, Todd Rundgren. That kind of actually is on brand for him. But I had <laughs> It had a, a bunch of singles actually, and I don't know if it was a commercial success. I actually do. I actually remember this one scaring me a little bit because it was there was something very 
creepily soothing, soothingly, cre soothingly creepy about Will Powers' voice. And I didn't know if Will Powers was this real kind of like mind control self-help guru. I did not know it was like the alter ego of a famous photographer. And this is one of those fever dreams where like, I couldn't remember the name. I know, you know, a few years ago, I was like, does anyone remember this? And, you know, John, I made a joke where you're like, yeah, of course. Well, most people don't. I took an informal survey. Most people don't. And I was like trying to Google it because I couldn't remember the name. I said will to power, but no, that's that terrible like Peter Frampton cover. It took me a really <laughs> long time to find a, finally uncover this. And yeah, it did friggin' happen. This is why we need Lindsay Parker because I take the L on this. This is one where I was like, don't remember this. I got, uh, a, I got a copy you. right here in the other room on vinyl. Yeah, um, you're prepared. You're prepared. Yeah, I'm prepared. Here's what I remember. So, don't quote me on all this, but I remember Lynn Goldsmith had some sort of relationship with Chris Blackwell, who owned Island Records. Sure. And so she was doing all this weird conceptual stuff, and he was like, "Hey, go down to Nassau and make an album. Who cares? Here's the here's." Oh my God, the '80s. Go down to yeah. Nassau. You know, see, I think I think like Chris Franz is on it. There's a lot of yeah. lot of credible people on this thing. And I also remember, and I know I can probably find this on YouTube and drop it in here. She went on MTV and got interviewed in character as Will Powers. I, she's wearing a mask or some sort of thing. I'm obsessed already. Great. I'll find the clip and I'll wow. slip it right here. I thought I could play the guitar. For many years, I tried very hard to do my best playing the guitar, and I realized that I wasn't getting anywhere until I heard Will Powers. And now I can play more than three chords and solo for at least 20 seconds. Well, I didn't tell me for coming out and said it, you know. Adventures in Success came on the video screen, a really big screen. You are a very important person. A rare individual. It reminds me of just, and, and again, this goes back to the, to the 70s, but like if you if you look at Cheech and Chong's Basketball Jones, like the people who just happened to sh drop in for that session <laughs> are some pretty intense people. Like I, I'm pretty sure George Harrison's uh, 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 singing in the background of Basketball Jones. And, and, you know, it's just Lou Adler was just like, hey, we're in the studio with Cheech and Chong. Like you can get some, you can get some, you know, talented people on a novelty song if you're if you're connected in the right way. Well, but okay, so to go back to what you were asking is like, did people know about this? Was it happening? Yeah, it got heavy rotation back in the day on MTV. At least that the uh, the adventures and success that it's you only you with the but head spinning. I remember that. Oh, that. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but did people know who? Lynn, that Lynn was in it. Did people know who, did people think Will Powers was a real like guru? TV news, like Mark Goodman would tip it off. Yeah, uh, you know, yeah. he would say the, the nom de plume or whatever. The he student see, he well, seems like the guy who would tip it off. Yeah, you know, that was pre-Kurt Loader days when Mark and JJ were the voices of authority. So, <laughs> obviously the two songs we just talked about had some credibility to them. We had a, a list of all-stars on the Will Powers record. Art of Noise were involved with the Max Headroom song. But let's talk about one where we can't really make so much of a case for the credibility. I will say, though, if you want to make a little bit of a credibility, somehow, uh, I will say the song I'm about to mention, went to number one in the UK in 1981. 
And oh. now I'm going to stay there for three weeks. But quite famously, this is, this is its legacy more than anything. It's a great injustice. It kept Ultravox's Vienna out of the top spot for all of those three weeks in the UK. And that is shut up in your face by Joel. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. And Midgeur feels that pain to this day. Yeah. I not. I mean, can you imagine how, I mean, I would argue that Vienna is maybe Ultravox's greatest song and certainly not a novelty song, dead serious song. It's a beautiful song. And he they're sitting there cock-locked at number two watching Shut Up by Your Face. Ah, Shut Up by Your Face. I did actually, even at this at the time this song came out and I was quite young, think that it was a little bit racist. It's like more of a... It's more of a stereotype of, of Italians and even like that pizza sh character on The Simpsons. But I did do a little research and Joe Dolce, I guess the last name should have chipped me off. He is of yeah. Italian descent. Yeah. He's actually Australian or Australian born or Australian raised. He's Australian. But like he is of Italian descent. So like maybe we give him a pass on that. But I mean, it's like every... Know. It was based that apparently on his real parents and his mother like saying, hey, why don't you get married and... Think, you know what it is? It's a fine, funny, goofy song, but when you put it in the context of it being number one for three weeks in England, it's just like, it's just like, sometimes the world is dumb and unfair. <laughs> sometimes? And, yeah. Most times the world <laughs> is dumb and unfair. And I'm not saying that shut up your face doesn't have its place in pop culture history. It absolutely does. But not but at number one above. Is it number Ultra one? Rock. That's <laughs> not his place. You've got Mario and Luigi over here looking at this song going, that's racist. <laughs> It's just so, it's just such an aggressively dumb song. It's so, which I also have a copy of on final. It's good to be prepared it's for that Sunday afternoon when you feel like some Italian. I don't know when I'm going to need it, you know? John, I'm curious. Do you recall it was a different time? And obviously there was no such thing as Twitter and cancel culture and this outrage culture. But like, did this song in 1981 get any flack for no, that? People loved it. People were like, hey, I'm going to run down to Gold Circle and buy my 99.45 and shut up at your face and play it. Yeah, I guess over, not, over. not even from like the Italian, you know, American not definition. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Celebratory. Maybe it was, maybe it's celebratory. Listen, I'm Jewish. I don't, I, how, how do I know? You know what I mean? And sure. also, I, I, it was I, huge though. Huge song. Massive. Oh, massive. It was song. huge. Well, let's move on to another song that doesn't have, I mean, it has redeeming value in the sense that it was amusing. But before I, you know, say what song this is, this is a song that sold, again, it was the 80s, 500,000 copies. It went to number 41 on the US uh, Billboard Hot 100, which is respectable. But it was nominated for a Grammy Award in 1985 for Best R&B Performance by a duo or group. Thankfully, it did not win. It lost out, understandably, to Kiss by Prince. And also, luckily, there was no companion album because by 1985, maybe record executives were starting to realize you didn't need to have a whole album to go with a novelty song. But I am, of course, talking about the Super Bowl Shuffle by Chicago <laughs> Bears Shuffling Crew. It was nominated for a freaking wait, Grammy for wait. Best R&B Performance. What the F? What? Huh? Okay, that just speaks to the the greater, larger issues 
of um, the Grammys, the, uh, and the, the Grammys, and the voters of the Grammys. That's not even an R and B song. If they were going to nominate it, nominate it for rap at least. Right? Do they even have a hip hop category at that point? Probably not. Eighty five. You know? I don't know. I think no. they might have. I am though really proud that I still remember the dance steps. Oh, the Super Bowl shuffle <laughs> was important. It was huge. I remember uh, uh, having a forty-five. Um, I don't know that I still have the forty-five, but um, it's it's really um, it was it was played on the radio like a normal song, like right, um, right and, and it was. <laughs> You know, I'm not a sports guy, and but I, I everyone was caught up in the hysteria of that Super Bowl, and um, and the Super and I think the Super Bowl shuffle was played on MTV. It was, I, I it mm. was, a, it was like a legitimate song that people were buying, and I think it was also just like seeing a sports team rap was uh, you had very fun. You had big personalities on that team. You had Richard Perry. I remember the blonde quarterback dude, sports ball guy. It got parodied on (laughs) sports ball guy. I I will say, John. it, it was the time of shuffle novelty hits. You had the curly shuffle. Mm-hmm. I was about to mention the jump in the saddle band, the curly shuffle, which actually went much higher on the Billboard Hot 100. Somehow made it to 15. Yeah, there are two things that guys tend to like that I don't like, and they are sports and the Three Stooges. So I had no interest in either of these songs. But I will say, with the Chicago Bears shuffling crew, you'd think as big as they were, as massive as they were, Super Bowl mania, they could have invested a little bit more money in that video. It looks like the videos people make <laughs> in their bedrooms now. It looks like I'm, it cost five dollars. By 1985, videos had pretty big budgets. This is the year of like "Take on Me" and "Money for Nothing" and stuff. But like, they spent like five dollars on the Chicago Bears video. I will, I will say though that it did inspire one of the greatest um, parody videos that exists on YouTube. Uh, that uh, a great director Scott Gardner made, which I'm sure you've seen, which is the Sex Offender Shuffle. State of Florida has asked us to disclose our sexual crimes to you. We were bad, but now we're good. We're moving into your neighborhood. You know we're trying our best to be functioning members of society. We're not here to start no trouble. We're leaving here to do the sex offender shuffle. Not seen that, and oh I don't my. know if I want to, Jake. No, no, no. It's, it's a very hilarious parody of the Super Bowl shuffle, and it's like um, a bunch of people in Miami who are sex offenders that are being forced to do this video. It's not it, It's not in poor taste. It's done in yeah, very, sure? very... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's done in very, very good taste. The sex and, offender shuffle is done in good taste. Okay. Yes, because it's right. executed so brilliantly. These people People are bad people and and they should be uh, highlighted and we should have registered sex offenders. But also, why would they be doing a rap parody? I was about to say, did we need did we need a parody of the Chicago Bears (laughs) shuffling crew? To let us know that sex offenders about, are wrong, like about a decade it? ago when Scott made it, we did, and uh, you know. Anyway, congrats on that courageous stance there on sex. <laughs> yeah, really, really going out on a limb. To your point about the budget, I will counter that and say it's probably the most expensive music video ever made, based on the salaries of the people involved. But the last podcast we did was about hip-hop and Mm -hmm. you know how at some point it got to a point where there were a lot of hip-hop novelty songs and there were a lot of like people doing 
you know, it was hitting critical mass with like these kind of parody rap songs. And a lot of people were doing rap songs in the 80s that were novelty songs. How can we forget? Let's segue right into rapping Rodney. I played hide and seek when I was three. No respect, no respect. Why they wouldn't even look for me. No respect, no respect. I was an ugly kid, I never had fun. No respect, no respect. They took me to a dog show and I won. No respect, no respect. He yeah. got no respect. I respect him. He got no respect, no respect. But one thing I learned, because we're talking about some of these novelty songs had unexpected credible uh, collaborators or unexpectedly went very far on uh, the charts. Apparently this song was co-written by J.B. Moore and Robert Ford Jr., who are the same songwriters who worked with Curtis Blow on the breaks. Fun fact. That, see, and that's why Rap and Rodney stands out as like, there's nothing worse to me than a terrible fake rap song, especially from the 80s. Some of them, you look back, it's, they, it's not even borderline racist. It's straight up racist. The, well, my name is this and I'm here to say, it's just like, you know, which literally that the origins of that trace back to a Flintstones you know, uh, serial commercial. Rap and Rodney is I just. Know, I know exactly the commercial you're talking. You know about. the commercial, so that's where that comes from. Okay, Barney Spitfire. Barney Spitfire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Barney had bars. I'm the master rapper, rhythm here to sing. I love fruity pebbles in a major way. He loves fruity pebbles in a major way. But Rap and Rodney was just that was Rodney Dangerfield hooking up with credible hip hop artists and they, you know, Rodney Dangerfield being hilarious um, and, and doing his best at a rap song. And he did get respect. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's actually respect. In the hip hop community. He yeah. got respect. Because and, he's funny. Yeah. And to that point, there's a great example right along there of, of someone who just really fell flat on his face, trying to do the same thing. Gary Trudeau with rap and Ronnie. Uh, Oh, yeah. Lord, have mercy. Now, let me hear a little bass now, Nancy. So good. So fine. You're cooking now, Mama. Thank you, dear. Al, smoking. We're in a grove now. That's a groove, sir. Groove. We're in a groove now. Remember what? that? The Ronald Reagan thing that was done by Gary Trudeau from Doonesbury? It was just so, so tone deaf and awful. Yeah. What was bad about it? Because I have zero recollection of that. Everything Jake just said about this patronizing, mm. you know, my money. It's as bad as you can think of it. Yeah. Right. Your like, mind is that bad. Like if you're going to like if you're going to parody something like I, I think that you really want to be respectful. That's why I love, you know, and maybe I'm a little biased, but like, you know, documentary now. Um, is one of my favorite shows because they um, honor these great documentaries and they, you know, they parry to them. Uh, the, the Talking the, Heads one is the yeah, best. the Yes, the Talking Heads one, which I, I've watched endlessly, um, uh, where they play a band called Test Pattern, is a pitch-perfect parody of not only Talking Heads, but the movie you know, stop making sense. And it's done with such love for, for the original. And I think that that like the best parodies come from love, you know, um, yeah. and, and, or sat, it's uh, the satires. And then, um, and there's parody songs there. It's like, it's either funny or it's just not, there's no in between. The, the rap and Ronnie one with Gary Trudeau, you can tell there was just like 
derision and like no love for hip hop or rap. Yeah, yeah probably not. Didn't that give a crap about it and just thought, oh, this will be funny if I put it to this. And it just, it sounds like it. We, we are running long as I kind of expected we might with you, Jake, because there's so much to talk about, so much, so much humor, so many laughs, so many Sorry. laughs. So we got, <laughs> do not apologize. It's a good problem to have. So we're going to take a break and we're going to continue this conversation next time. So special thanks to you. Uh, thanks to you, the other John Hughes, who's joined me today because he's always my partner in all things 80s. I'm Lindsay Parker. We want to thank you for listening. And remember to give us a rate and review on your favorite podcast platform. And we will catch you next time for more novelty songs. This was Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Totally 80s. And please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Until our next episode, catch you on the flip side.